to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. All right. I've got a lot of school-related stuff to bring up here. The teacher shortage continues to be remarkably rampant. Um, almost every single state is struggling to fill positions that are still vacant. And I also have some jab-related stuff also. But right here at the start, what I wanted to do was kind of riff a little bit on a particular trend that I'm noticing, and it sort of falls in line with some of the other social media posts, I guess, and certainly some of the, I guess I would call it hopium, but it's also a little bit of ignorance sort of mixed in and inexperience mixed in with, with, with some of these posts. And here's what I'm talking about, and it also kind of falls in line with um, you know, people trying to seem as if they are ahead of the curve and that what might look like a positive thing might not end up being a positive thing. At face value, it looks like a positive thing, but it's far more complicated. Um, and it has to do with, again, in the last primary election that took place, again, it was either last week or the week before, where a lot of people were saying and getting very excited on social media about conservatives winning school board races. Uh, yeah, again, a, a lot of posts where people are saying, "Yeah, we flipped our school board, and you know, we did it, and now it's a majority conservative, and we're we're taking our schools back, and all of this stuff." Um, again, having worked in the business of education, it is not quite that simple. There are a variety of things, and again, I'm not dooming, I'm just bringing the facts to bear here because this is what, again, a lot of people on social media don't do, which reminds me that I wanted to mention this. I'm not a fan of social media, never have been, and I'm still not. Um, it reminds me of middle school and high school behavior in that a lot of the people who are deemed as being more popular or having more followers or this, that, or the other that doesn't make them right. In fact, in many cases, they're dead wrong on countless issues. They just are inaccurate. And education, unfortunately, is, is one of those subjects where, again, everybody feels as if because they've experienced it as a student, then they're somehow an expert in the particular field. I, of course, am not an expert, but I know more than someone who has never worked in the field about what goes on in education. So, again, it has to do with a lot of these social media posts where people are getting excited that they're flipping their school boards to so-called conservative members. The thing to keep in mind is that as an individual becomes a school board member, that's really only the beginning. And what you're likely to accomplish on a school board, even if you're in the so-called majority, involves really just being able to potentially, and I emphasize the word potentially, change some of the things that happen locally within some of the school buildings. For example, getting rid of some of the perverse books. This is something that a majority school board who, who claims to be conservative can easily do and get rid of. You as a school board, you go through the library, you look at all of the titles of all of the books, and you demand that they be removed. 
If they aren't removed, then you make a motion and a vote within a meeting to remove them. You put it on the agenda and you have them removed. If they fail to remove them, then you discipline the individuals who are in charge, label them with insubordination, whatever else, and then you fire them if you have to because they aren't doing what they're supposed to do. That's one example of one move that a school board can make without state intervention. The state doesn't need to exist regarding most of that. Uh, they don't have to get involved, is my point. Here's where, here's where the rubber meets the road, and this is the real problem. The problem is, is that just because people believe that a school board is seemingly a majority conservative, it does not mean that the pillars and the foundation of, of the entire corrupt system are really going to change at all. They're not. The very position of a school board, as you've heard me say, implies that you're still going along with the same corrupt system as before. What really needs to change is what goes on at the state level within state government. Because if the laws aren't changed there, then it doesn't matter what you do as a school board official or at the local level. It's, it's really not going to matter. The, the crux of the issues have to do with insufficient curriculum, curriculum that is untrue, dishonest, or just blatant lies. All of the materials that are used for said curriculum. And then, of course, the diversity, equity, inclusion, social-emotional learning, critical race theory stuff. All those clubs and groups, a lot of those exist because there's state money or grants that are put to, uh, to basically prop those organizations and those people up in order to exist within a local school district. Now, a local school district, again, is a, a majority school board that claims to be conservative. They can, they can attempt to eliminate all of, all of those positions and those people that we're no longer going to have social-emotional learning. We're no longer going to have these particular groups that are led by adults who get paid to implement this nonsense. I mean, you can do your best to get rid of it. Here's where, here's, again, this is the problem. This is, again, where the rubber meets the road, is if it's state law, you still have to implement it. If the state says that you still have to implement it, then you have to implement it. Not to mention, if you're a majority conservative school board who has recently won an election and now you're, you're in that position, or going to be in that position, you still have to remove a great deal of people within the district within a number of positions. Again, you've heard me say superintendent, HR director, treasurer, district office officials, even those gossipy secretaries. You have to get rid of them because if you don't, they're going to continuously come after you as school board members. They're going to file ethics violations. Parents will do the same. So it doesn't mean that just because an elected official now has taken over a, a position, again, that is seemingly a good move in the eyes of novices who would look at this and say, well, you know, we're, we're taking our schools back and our, our kids are going to get the real education that they need. That's not going to happen. That isn't going to happen. Um, what is far more likely to occur 
if everybody has their heads on straight and the incoming school board members have an agenda, and that agenda is hopefully a positive one, is they're all going to be voting on the same things at the same time and slowly working their way into removing what they can remove and doing what's within their power. Beyond that, if it's state law, it's state law, and you have to follow it. Again, if the DEI and SEL and all that other nonsense is state law, or it's written into the uh, State Department of Education standards in some way, you have to follow them. There's nothing you can do about that. Uh, you know, you, you can do your best to lie, I suppose. You could fill it out on paperwork and say that you have it when in fact you don't, but someone's going to notice that you don't have it when you say that you do. And then that's when they're going to report you to an ethics commission for violating Department of Education regulations or whatever it may be. Um, I, I, my whole take on it is this. I just don't, I, I don't support continuously propping up the very foundation of the corrupt system that, we're, that we've all been complaining about now for a very long time and commenting on and analyzing for a very long time. So this is part of the naivete that exists within social media is again, you know, certain organizations like the 1776 Project and all these other groups are saying, yeah, you know, we turned, we turned these school boards conservative, way to go, Texas, you know, way to go, Florida, whatever else. It, It doesn't mean anything. Uh, and I'm not raining on a parade here. I'm just saying that it doesn't mean a whole lot unless, again, those individuals understand what they can control and what they cannot control. The state government is ultimately the biggest problem. And infiltrating state government is, is remarkably hard. It's a hard thing to do. You've got to shake all the right hands. You have to shake them the right way. Um, people have to know who you are. It's, it's remarkably corrupt, but until laws are changed and eliminated and completely abolished at the state level, then you're never really going to get the kind of results that you want to get at the local level. I'd go so far as to say that it's kind of the illusion of success. It's the illusion of a victory. And again, I'm not saying that some good things can't occur. They certainly can. Like I said, a school board has the ability to get rid of a superintendent. You have the ability to set up administrators to fail. And that right there, again, takes a great deal of knowledge, and and it takes a certain kind of person in order to try to get a corrupt or bad or unethical or immoral administrator or even teacher out of your out of your school district is you have to know how to set them up so that they fail um it's a very nefarious strategy but it's one that works and again a lot of these hard leftists are easy to set up because they're so um well well they're just so brainwashed in in all of their methods and everything that they do for example you know the rainbow flags or the antifa flags or the black lives matter this or black lives matter that you know whatever organization or ideology that they want to push within their classroom 
You simply, again, and school boards are doing this, which is good. This is something that's happening nationwide, but they're putting out memos. These conservative majority uh, school boards are putting out memos that are saying you need to get rid of this ideology. You need to get rid of the symbolism, uh, the visual artifacts, so to speak. They, They aren't going to exist in our school anymore, and you need to get rid of them. The hardened leftists are going to scream, yell, and shout and resist because that's what they've been taught within their teacher education programs. They've been taught to not think and just go with the hive mind, but if the people in power say something that goes against their firmly held belief, then they'll dig their feet in the ground and and they won't budge. Well, contractually speaking, again, that's insubordination, which means you can fire them. You have to document all of this proof that they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, that they aren't doing what they were told to do, uh, that they were warned. Maybe they were even disciplined first, but they're continuously doing it. Then you still, then you can catch them, and then that's when you can fire them for insubordination because, again, that's a fireable offense. Fireable is not a word, but you get what I'm saying. It's an offense that a person can be fired for. But again, that mindset is usually one that the enemy has, and it's not usually one that a morally sound, ethical human being would have. My point is is that you've got to fight fire with fire. You have to use their tactics against them. And as it turns out, um, it's legal. You, you, can, you can do these things. You can set these administrators up and these teachers up to get rid of them. Again, a lot of this, however, is just playing patty cake. It's playing patty cake inside of a burning building. Um, it, it isn't going to solve anything in the long run because the entire business is collapsing. And there's just endless proof of that. Again, the teacher shortage is, is an issue I'm going to cover a little bit later in this episode because it's continuing to be massive. Um, I, just, I, I just don't like the social media like a hive mind, I guess it would, it, it would be called. It, it's too much like high school. It's too much like the popularity contests in high school. Just because you're sitting at the cool kids table, so to speak, with tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of followers doesn't mean you're right. And when everybody again is jumping on this, well, you know, we've taken our school boards back, you know, they're conservative now, so all the good things are going to happen. The answer to that's no. That's not, that's not going to be the case. There's still state law that has to be followed, and you can lose your seat as an elected official and even brought up, be brought up on criminal charges any time you want, or they want, I should say. Any time that a complaining individual wants to bring a complaint your way, uh, in many cases, you'll have to vacate office. So again, I'm, I'm not trying to discourage people from, from being on school boards. I'm simply saying the business is collapsing and continuing to inhabit the very positions that continue to prop up the system, I think is a mistake. Again, a lack of participation is the easiest way to watch this entire thing crumble to the ground. That's it. It's a complete lack of participation. 
Because if all of the leftists, for example, are inhabiting these positions of school board members, as the collapse is continuing to happen and as the entire thing collapses, they can't blame it on anybody else. And yes, we're seeing them attempt to blame it on countless people and countless things. Well, people are moving out and, you know, they, people are growing up and demographics change and this, that, and the other. I mean, they're coming up with a thousand excuses, but it's happening on their watch. And again, anybody paying attention to this at face value can see that it's happening on their watch. I, I don't think you want to run into a collapsing building as it's collapsing, thinking you're going to be able to save it. I, I, because again, when it collapses, who are they going to blame? Are they going to blame all of these conservatives taking over these school boards, apparently? I mean, possibly. Uh, yeah. Uh, not to mention the layoffs. I mean, the layoffs that are coming as a result of, of not having enough teachers already and not having enough students is going to be immense. It's just going to be immense. So I just wanted to mention that and just kind of riff on, on that a little bit. It's not, it's not as simple as, as people think. It's far more complicated. And I didn't even get into the business of, again, changing curriculum and the real work that that takes. That, that goes on at the state level, which means you have to infiltrate state departments of education and even the uh, state representative's office and the Senate. And then, of course, you have to be able to get a governor to sign off on particular things, which um, is highly unlikely. Government is just too big. That continues to be the biggest problem. Keep in mind, you know, historically speaking, even my own great-grandmother taught in a, in a one-room schoolhouse. There was no government intervention. What was taught was, was hand-selected by the instructor. That was it. And they knew what they were selecting because it was pretty basic. But again, it wasn't basic. If you go back and you read some of those old tests from, you know, the 1860s and 19 and early 1900s, some of those tests are remarkably difficult. Even, you know, 70 years ago, some of those, some of the, the grade level examinations that had to be passed by students, I mean, students and even their teachers today couldn't pass them. They're remarkably tough, but that should just show you what they were actually teaching them, the kinds of things that they were teaching them as opposed to today. Uh, it's, it's just too big. The corruption is too big that inhabiting, again, a, a, a local school board is not going to fix everything that ails the area. With that said, I, I also wanted to mention this because I saw this was apparently a thing too. And Project Veritas again, and James O'Keefe and, and that gang, they aren't, they aren't free from criticism either. They aren't free from any of this criticism regarding them bringing up particular school-related issues and, and whatever else. They have apparently a school and curriculum uh, mini-series coming out here in the, uh, well, this week, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. and. I know for a fact that a lot of the clips that they've already played are very old. They're good clips, a lot of union corruption, a lot of uh, undercover videos of educators making fun of students. I mean, it's, it's, 
it's really very um again i'm i'm not trying to stand on some kind of a soapbox or a a podium so to speak and and basically say well i already know all this so it doesn't matter that's not it i mean it's certainly for someone and people are going to learn from it which is a good thing i hope that there's newer foot you know newer footage as opposed to some of the older stories that they've done um but hey if a person watches those videos and it convinces them to to leave their local school district and pull their children out and homeschool, then all the better. I'm all for that. But uh, Project Veritas is opportunistic, to say the least, and, and they do what they do when they do it to try to, again, draw attention to themselves and get as much money as they can for all their pet projects and the different things that they do. And, you know, it is what it is. But I'll I'll certainly watch it and I'll certainly pay attention to it and maybe even reference a few things here along the way. But, um, yeah, I don't think it's going to be earth shattering information. <laughs> it, it it typically isn't from Project Veritas. It's usually a little late, in in my opinion. It's a little late to the game. Uh, but again, I'm not I'm not criticizing it in saying that it's worthless. It's certainly not worthless. Uh, it's it's going to be valuable one way or another. It's and it's certainly going to be for someone. You know, someone's going to watch it and listen to it and and certainly enjoy it. And again, if it motivates them to pull their children out, so be it. Okay, shifting gears here slightly, but all you know, still in the same vein here. Um, speaking of of needing to pull your children out, this bounced on Gab last week. I believe the beginning of last week. And I was mesmerized when I heard this. Uh, Let me set this up. And again, this comes from Tommy Robinson's page. Again, not a huge fan of Tommy Robinson by any stretch, but this particular story, again, there's a little little nuanced section within this audio clip that you're going to hear that is disturbing. And you've heard me mention this particular thing. On a consistent basis, I would just call it a phenomenon. It's a very interesting phenomenon. It is one that fascinates the ever-living hell out of me. It fascinates me to no end because I cannot for the life of me understand this wavelength. But it is a wavelength that is more common, I think, than we know. And it proves the, how, how deep the brainwashing goes. So before I play the audio clip, here's the, here's the text that sort of describes this. It says, Florida father, Wendell Perez, tells the state surgeon general that Clay County District Schools secretly transitioned his 12-year-old daughter without his knowledge and affirmed a male name and pronouns, which contributed to her attempted suicide in a school bathroom. Says the Perez family filed a lawsuit earlier this year against the school district, which which has disputed the family's claims. Of course they have. And then it says similar lawsuits have been filed in California and Wisconsin. Now, when they say that the school district secretly transitioned their 12-year-old daughter, it doesn't mean that they attempted to, you know, cut body parts off or anything like that. They were simply grooming the individual in an effort to change them mentally into a boy, which is disturbing. Now, 
if a school district did this with your child, and as you know, I don't have children, and I don't have to have them in order to know what I would do in this situation, you can probably come up with a pretty speedy response and, some, and, and a variety of things that you would and would not do ever again. I'm going to play this audio clip before I say anything else because I want to see if you can catch the part of this dad describing this situation that is remarkably disturbing beyond the story itself. So here's that audio clip in three, two, one. In January of uh, 2022, I went to uh, my daughter's elementary school to deal with a very sensitive incident. My daughter attempted suicide by hanging in one of the school bathrooms. My wife and I were told that, uh, by the school counselor that it happened because of an ongoing issue with her gender identity. We were in shock because our daughter never showed any signs of questioning her biological sex. Um, we were told that they knew about the gender issue due to meetings they were having with our daughter behind our backs. We learned that during these meetings, our, daughter, uh, our daughter's confusion was affirmed and validated through the use of fictitious male names and male pronouns. Our daughter uh, was living a double life without her consent or knowledge. She was affirmed and socially transitioned in school. Due to the nature of the incident, uh, our daughter was overactive and taken away from us um, with minimal contact for over a week until she was released uh, under our care. As a family, we had to pick up the pieces, uh, clean up the mess, and start a period of painful healing. However, we decided as parents from the beginning that we were not going to affirm the, the, the dysphoria. Uh, we were not uh, going to validate a delusion contrary to uh, the recommendation from some professionals in the field. We provided, um, actually we did provide uh, unconditional support uh, with proper mental health care and non-affirming therapy to our daughter. Underlying disorders like depression and anxiety were properly treated we remove her from the school environment and place her in homebound. We broke her back from her confusion. She is steadfast and sure of her gender and the suicidal ideation is gone. This semester, actually, she is ready to go back to the brick and mortar school setting. In summary, our daughter was suicidal when she was being affirmed. However, when she was brought back from that state of confusion, the suicidal ideation disappeared completely. Therefore, my daughter's case disproves the current narrative that the lives of children with gender dysphoria are in jeopardy if they do not get affirmed. If you validate one delusion, then what is next? They're actually sending their daughter back. They're sending their daughter back to either a public 
or a private or a charter school system instead of homeschooling, learning on their own in a safe environment. Again, this blows me away. It continues to blow me away. I, I, I don't know if there's any other examples I could bring up or, you know, m- metaphors that, that, that would describe this level of insanity. It's just like here locally, again, you've heard me mention the LeMay family and their daughter who, again, was assaulted by a middle school business teacher. They're sending their daughter back to the same school building, you know, because of friends and sociable and all of this other nonsense. It just continues to blow me away. The, the, again, I'm, sh- I'm certain they're probably not sending her to the same school in Florida regarding this just sexual grooming, uh, blatant sexual grooming example, which was remarkably horrific. But why on earth would you send her back to an environment where there was even a chance that that might happen again? That she would be around people, students, teachers, etc., who would be behaving in such ways. Again, using the pronouns and the, the nicknames and dressing up like cats and all this other garbage. Why would you do that as a parent? I mean, if your child... Here's an example. It's absurd, but, you know, it's an example. If, a ch- if your child was raped... In the ball pit of a Chuck E. Cheese. Would you take her to therapy, hold the people held accountable, you know, hold the people accountable for for the crime in the Chuck E. Cheese to then only go back to the Chuck E. Cheese once the therapy seemed to be successful? I mean, is is that what you would do? Would that even enter your mind? Would you say to yourself, well, you know, someday we're going to get back to Chuck E. Cheese as a family and play in the ball pit as the mechanical band, you know, plays all their jams as we eat this god-awful pizza. I mean, is that really, <laughs> is, that, is that really the mind frame that you have as a parent? See, in my head, that's the inability of the parent to let go completely. And to understand that that avenue of quote-unquote education, the existence of the public school apparatus, has to exist in the lives of not just the child, but the whole family. That, oh gosh, what will we do if we don't have the public school system in our lives in some way? And what you've heard me say a thousand times, and what endless people have have experienced on their own, is that when they abandon permanently the K-12 apparatus as we know it, their lives get better. They become healthier human beings, healthier families, they communicate more, they enjoy life more, they learn more. The benefits are endless, too many to even list. But don't worry, in this case, after attempting to hang themselves in the bathroom of a school because of 
gender confusion brought about by brainwashing among school employees and the entire environment itself along with their peers. We're finally ready to take our daughter back to the brick-and-mortar institutions that we so know and love. It blows me away. I'm at an absolute loss. You just can't fix that. You cannot fix that. If I was raped in the ball pit of a Chuck E. Cheese, you know, you couldn't get me in the parking lot of a Chuck E. Cheese. It's, <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty simple. I mean, I'm not going to go, you know what I want to do on my birthday? I mean, I, it wouldn't even be a suggestion. And I would do whatever I'd have to do, of course, to not even make it a thought. But, uh, yeah, I just, I don't get it. I just don't get it. But it's, it's something that, again, is continuing to happen with numerous families, even in the most extreme of cases, much like you've heard me bring up the jab spectrum and all the reasons why people got the jabs and, and what's happening with them. This, this phenomenon is its own spectrum of a variety of different things, um, endless, endless options of, of what families are doing to alleviate these crises that they are experiencing with their own children. And unfortunately, one of the notches in that spectrum is, well, let's just send them back. Because if we just send them back to the same abusive environment, things will be okay. They will not be okay. And I don't think, really, that there's anything therapeutic about revisiting that environment. I know that there are probably some psychologists and psychiatrists that would say, well, it's closure. You know, you're, re you're returning to the same abusive environment because now you can handle it and you, you know what to look for and you don't need to avoid it your whole life. So now it's just, it's, it's closure. I'm sorry. We, we don't stay in school our whole lives. So there's no reason to send them back after they've been abused in such an environment, at, certainly with such an extreme method in such an extreme way. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. But that's just me. I could be wrong. Now, shifting gears slightly here, although not too far, certainly contributing to the teacher shortage that we are all experiencing and certainly hearing about, there was two conflicting stories, and I put this out on Gab, sort of just making its own meme, because sometimes the memes make themselves. And it was two conflicting stories of the teacher shortage. One was from The Atlantic, that publication, and the other was from The Washington Post. And The Atlantic was titled something like, There is no teacher shortage, relax. That was it. Long, ridiculous article basically saying, Teacher shortages aren't new. There's no new teacher shortage. The numbers don't match, blah, blah, blah. And then one from the Washington Post that said, there is a nationwide massive teacher shortage. So which is it? And this, again, is something that exists among the left on a consistent basis that I just love because the snake eats its own tail all the time. The enemy can't even get on the same page about what's really going on in the world. They just, they can't. 
this right here too shows and continues to show the brazen behavior of the left as well, in particular the illegal behavior, and then ultimately, thank God, a uh, a judge ended up shutting this down. But the mayor of D.C., Muriel Bowser, who is by all stretch of the imagination a uh, accessory to murder regarding Seth Rich, uh, this is titled, this is from The Federalist, but it's titled, D.C. Schools Enrolls Illegal Immigrants While Kicking Black Students to the Curb for Refusing COVID Jab. So, she tried to impose a federal mandate for jabs for federal workers and students, I believe. And a judge has since eliminated that and said, you can't, you can't do that. So that's not happening anymore. However, enrolling illegal immigrants is certainly something that is happening. Illegal immigrant students, what they're also doing, and by they I mean the nationwide education apparatus, they are quite literally hiring illegal teachers, foreign illegal teachers. This is something, again, that is both not new, but something that is ramping up. Even among those like Glenn Youngkin, the alleged conservative governor in Virginia. And I have an audio clip that I'd rather just play right now because it kind of cuts right to the chase. And again, they even say it in in this particular uh, news story and news audio that these are band-aids on a much larger problem. But uh, I would like everybody just to close your eyes and imagine what it would be like to have American K-12 schools filled with illegals and then filled with illegal teachers who are here on a temporary basis because they can't find enough American teachers to do the job. It's remarkable. And frankly, it sounds like a nightmare. It just sounds like an absolute nightmare. Because again, teacher education students have no idea what they're walking into. And I bet they're not planning on walking into a school building that's filled with illegals. But it is happening. And it's happening all over the nation. So, this audio clip comes from WRIC.com, ABC 8 News. It's titled, Governor Yunkin Fast-Tracking Plan to Reduce Virginia's Teacher Shortage. Here we go. Governor Glenn Yunkin says he's speeding up a plan to address a statewide teacher shortage. He says pay raises simply came too late. Capitol Bureau reporter Jackie DeFusco is live in the studio with what's being done. Jackie, how big is this problem? Well, Deanna, this year's numbers are not yet final, but the Virginia Education Association found that as of August 11th, there were more than 10,000 job postings at schools across the state. And those vacancy rates tended to be much higher in divisions with the largest share of black and low income students. As a longstanding teacher shortage appears to worsen in Virginia, Governor Glenn Youngkin says he's fast tracking one fix. I was just meeting with a group of retired teachers who in fact want to come back and teach now and are having trouble getting getting their license renewed and also some challenges with the retirement system's treatment of that. And so we've got a SWAT team working on it right now. And so I'm really hopeful that we can see immediate outcomes. With no set timeline for that step, a separate law allowing teachers licensed outside of the United States to come into Virginia's classrooms if they're approved for a provisional license. It's still not clear if any have been granted by the state 
since that change took effect July 1. Senator Barbara Favola. I do know that some school systems had actually been doing this prior to my legislation. That's how great the need is. But the Virginia Education Association says these are band-aid fixes to a problem that stems from underfunding schools. The state budget approved earlier this summer includes a 10% pay raise for teachers over two years if localities pay their share. The raises that were passed in this budget are hugely important. I was frustrated that it, that it was sent to my desk as late as it was in June. But despite promises from both parties, advocates say it still falls short of the national average. Vola says she wants Virginia in the top five states for teacher pay. We're not there yet, and we will have to put a lot more state funding on the table. And looking ahead, Senator Favola says state lawmakers may look at forgiving student loan debt for future teachers and allowing college students to get into the classroom during that last year of their degree. Up in the studio, I'm Jackie DeFusco, 8 News. This is all about pattern recognition, and I hope that the people, again, that are listening to this show on a, on a consistent or semi-consistent basis are picking up on these patterns that these individuals are referencing as their so-called solutions. They all say that it's money, that the issue is money and pay raises and, you know, they need to be in the top five in the nation for, for teachers' salary. And that's why people don't want to be teachers. Ladies and gentlemen, when you have 10,500 people who aren't working within the state's education system in all of the schools, that's not fixed with money. That's not a money thing. They're, they're looking at the landscape as human beings and they're saying, this place is dangerous. This place is immoral. I want nothing to do with it. It's too hyper-political. No chance. I'm out. And they leave. They leave. And for the governor of Virginia to actually bring up, and he's lying. I mean, let's not, <laughs> let's not, let's not sugarcoat this. He's lying because he's a liar. When, when he says that they're having a hard time getting through the red tape when it comes to having retired teachers return from retirement to then re-enter the classroom, make another salary, uh, and, and continue teaching, that he views that as being a viable solution to the teacher shortage. Number one, that doesn't fix anything. That's not fixing the problem. And number two, actually there's multiple numbers on this. Number two, what, what retired teacher in their right mind would want to return to an American classroom in this day and age. Number three, I mean, I guess for number three, you can bring in money and you can say, well, how much money are they going to be making? Not to mention, with their years of experience, where do, where, where do they start? Are they, are, are they starting at the top of that pay scale because they're a retired teacher, or are they starting back at the bottom as a novice? Why, why would they want to start as a novice and make a novice entry you know, an entry-level salary as a, as a retired veteran teacher. Why would they want to do that? If that's, if that's one of the scenarios that exists, that makes absolutely no sense. Uh, number four, is the individual a masochist? Is this the mind frame of, of the individual that would leave retirement to re-enter the education system? I, I don't get it. 
again, th- their fixes are not fixes. They're consistently trying to pick up mercury with a fork because they have no idea how to fix this problem. 10,500 people in the state of Virginia. I mean, th- that, was the, that was the number of vacancies, job openings, just based on the Virginia Education Association alone as of August 11th. It's incredible. And I might add, it continues to prove my point that they were even interviewing a state senator and they were saying, well, it's all about money and we just need to, we just need to get as much money in the pockets of teachers as humanly possible. And it's all about pay raises, pay raises, pay raises, because that's the thing that will shut up the sheep is just a little bit more money. That's not the problem. The problem is, is they're being jerked around. They're being lied to. Everybody's been abused in these environments again, as I've beat this dead horse a million times. It's arguably the most abusive environment outside of a hospital. They're incredibly, they're just incredibly violent, but not because of school shootings. They're incredibly violent because of the, just the, the general workplace environment. The general malaise that exists within the environment itself. Again, the lying, the manipulation, uh, the gaslighting, all, all, all of that. All of that is such a huge problem that that's the real reasons why individuals are, are leaving and ultimately, of course, not becoming education majors at the college and university level, which, as you've heard me say, uh, you know, the, the candle's burning at both ends and, and the dam is drying up. It's just drying up. Uh, this right here is a post. I wanted to read this too, because this also, again, it brings in the higher education element and it's 100% accurate. This, this is a post that was on greatawakening.win, I believe last week, if I'm not mistaken, but I took a screenshot of it and I want to read it right here. It's titled, In Our War to Restore Our Republic, We have informed people about big media, big government, big tech, and big pharma. We should throw in one more, big education, especially at the university level. So here's what it says, quote, The colleges in our nation have been heavily infiltrated by globalist, libtard academics who indoctrinate our kids and bilk them financially on top of it. For years... Kids have been told that they need a college degree to succeed in life. We now know this is not true. With the cabal's college debt forgiveness in the news recently, which is completely illegal, by the way, and is not going to happen, uh, I have to ask why a student would have to build up a six-figure debt to get an education, quote-unquote. The universities across this nation are overcharging for their services, quote-unquote. Allow me to cite one micro-example. The University of Akron, my alma mater, currently charges $1,500 for a Calculus I class that meets four days a week for 15 weeks, with an exam in the 16th week. For those of you who took Calculus, it only goes through derivatives and finishes with related rates. In addition to the $1,500, the students are charged a student fee that goes to other areas. I do not know how much that is now. A single Calculus I class is limited to 32 students, but they offer up to eight different sections if needed. 
The class is considered a low-level class in the math department and is taught by a part-time instructor who is usually a retiree from one of the local school districts. The instructor who usually teaches only one of the sections gets paid $12,000 for four hours a week for the full semester. Now do the arithmetic. One class of 32 students, $1,500 per student plus student fees, comes to $48,000. The instructor is paid $12,000, which means the university pockets $36,000 plus student fees for each section of this course. Now imagine this over all the courses they offer in one semester. The full-time professors in the math department make about the same as high seniority teachers in neighboring school districts, which is about $50,000 to $90,000 per year, and they teach the 400-level and grad-level courses that charge more. Akron is not a high-prestige university, but they rake in this kind of money each semester. Imagine what other colleges and universities rake in. And they said, friends, we need to add big universities to the problem of this nation that needs to be fixed. There is a reason fewer and fewer are attending college these days, unquote. I completely agree. And as you've heard me say this too, it, it, more specifically, I guess, within teacher education departments, they never concern themselves with what they're teaching, why they're teaching it, and what the long-term ramifications are for the student when it comes to the profession of education. Because this has been studied. It's been peer-reviewed. It's been published. It's not new. The information is out there. That teacher education students are spending more time learning about the alleged profession and allegedly learning about the profession then they will actually be spending time in the actual profession itself. But see, even I have brought that up to professors in the past, back when I was interviewing to actually be a professor. And it, of course, didn't work out. Thank God for it. But that was something that I would bring up. I would say, so how's your student enrollment? And they'd say, well, you know, it's better, it's better than we thought. And, you know, they kind of sugarcoat it. And I'd go, well, you know, how, how much time do you spend teaching them about the actual job and the profession and, you know, th things of that nature that can actually keep them within the, you know, within the job and within the profession? On a semi-regular basis, I would hear from these professors and they would quite literally say that it's not their concern, that they don't care. If they get a job when they, when they end up uh, leaving, then that's the only parameter that they're concerned with. And, and they stick their chests out, and they're rather proud of that. Well, all our graduates get hired, and that means that we're successful. Ladies and gentlemen, the K-12 apparatus would hire a stool, an actual four-legged stool, to be a school teacher if it had to. It would hire a bag of sand. If it thought that the bag of sand could manage a class and, you know, pass out papers, it just wants a heartbeat. But when the teacher education departments and the university apparatus is using that as their measuring stick of success, that right there should show you that that's the largest problem. They say, well, we have an almost 100% higher rate from our graduates. And, well, we've done our job. And then they rub their hands and, you know, they say, well, we're out. So whatever happens to them from here on out isn't our fault, it's their fault. That is quite literally the approach they take. 
but they ignore all of the proven facts of what is taught, what is not taught, all of the problems that exist within the K-12 apparatus. And as you heard me say at the very beginning of this episode, how the entire thing is built on a foundation of lies and corruption that cannot be fixed at the local or even university level. So it's not something that can get fixed here, because again, that would require very competent and knowledgeable people to know what the real problem is. It's not teacher pay. That's not the issue. It's, it's everything. It's everything else that I've, that, that I've consistently brought up on this show. And what we're going to start seeing now in the near future, certainly it's certainly happening now, but we're not hearing about it with any regularity. And it's certainly not making the mainstream media is the elimination of teacher education departments. Because if local school districts have less to pick from, and they already do, the teacher education departments are typically the ones at the university level that don't last. They're the ones that get plucked first when it comes to elimination. The business departments stick around, the management, the economics, you know, all all of that sticks around and will and will typically last until the very last person leaves the university institution. But it's the teacher education departments, along with all the gender studies nonsense, that's typically the first to go. And you know, you 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 can't you can't fix a K twelve problem if you have nothing to pull from. And they already don't have anything to pull from, just based on a qualification and competence standpoint. So yeah. That's that's a massive problem. Not gonna not gonna get better. Okay. With that said, on to jab stuff, and there's a great deal here. Um, let's see. First of all, the expose has an article here that uh, that's interesting, and certainly statistics based, and it needs to be brought up. It is titled "Government Data Reveals." 254 million vaccine refuseniks, quote unquote, across the United States and the UK, as three in every five people refuse a single or further dose of the COVID 19 vaccine. Uh, There's some interesting charts here, so allow me to read them. This first says, as of August 25th, 2022, the Centers for Disease Control provides the following data, assuming they can be trusted, of course, on COVID-19 vaccinations in the United States. It says the total number here for individuals in the United States, uh, at least one dose, is approximately 262,323,837 which is approximately 79% of the population has received one dose. Data for dose two, which would be considered fully vaccinated under the CDC's parameters, makes up approximately 67.4%. It then says for those who have received a third dose, that they make up approximately 48.4% of the population in the United States. And then a fourth dose is approximately 33.2%. So again, what's interesting about this is that even though it might be touted 
in one direction as simply saying, well, look at all of the people who aren't receiving more doses. Ladies and gentlemen here, uh, the damage is already done. The damage is done. If we have, what, 360 million, give or take, or is it 380, something like that, uh, million people in the United States, if you have 60, I mean, if you've got 67.4% of the population that's taken two doses, that's, that's not good. That is, as people have said online, that's a civilization collapse right there. Again, time's going to tell on this one, but um, these numbers are not good by any stretch. In fact, that brings me to this. I have two more things that I want to read here. The first is an email that was sent to me by a listener who has sent me some other information in the past. Uh, very perceptive individual and doing an incredible job of, of gathering information from their clients. This particular individual, again, is a a brick mason by trade, and they have a number of clients, as they say in this email to me, that include, of course, businesses and doctors and lawyers and what have you. Uh, I'm just going to read this, and then you can just let this fertilize wherever you'd like. But uh, it's it's legit, without a doubt. Keep in mind, this is one person, and this is one person's perspective on on what's been going on and the people around them. And then I have another post from Great Awakening that kind of breaks down a lot of the medical apparatus and what's really been going on within that as well. And again, some of it's shocking and some of it not. But here's the email. It says this, quote, Good morning, Dr. Brooks. I just wanted to shoot you a little update. It says, I believe I had already told you that I had a bunch of clients getting sick after taking the vaccine, quote unquote. As of today, August 27th, 2022, I have 30 clients that I work for. Out of the 30 families, all except two of them are fully vaccinated. Out of those 28 families that are fully vaccinated, every single one of them have gotten COVID, quote-unquote, since their vaccines, quote-unquote. Out of the 28 families that have gotten sick after their vaccines, quote-unquote, two individuals have already died. One just had brain surgery yesterday to drain all the blood off the brain. Two individuals are in ICU for heart issues, and two have rapidly advancing dementia to the point where they have to have a sitter. Sixteen individuals, aside from the aforementioned, have had to stay in the hospital overnight. All of these families were in good health before all the shots. Eighty individual people in all, and this many have been ill and two deaths. That seems like a pretty high percentage of illness or death just from the shot. I talked to every one of these people before they ever got their first shot and only a couple listened to me. It's very difficult being a brick mason and trying to give medical advice to lawyers, doctors, and engineers. Just wanted to give you a little update from Alabama. Keep up the good work. Dr. Brooks, you're doing a great job. Well, thank you. Uh, and that's horrific. But yeah, you see that right there almost begs the question, are we writing down lists of the people that we know who have taken these shots and then sort of keeping tabs and notes just around our circles of influence, so to speak, or again, the people that we're working with or family members or the people that we're around? That's, that's, that's interesting data to collect. 
and, and remarkably valuable. Again, just within this person's circle of influence, so to speak, that's a, that's a very high number. So this is something that everybody's just going to have to keep paying attention to, I think, and, uh, and, and keep tabs on it. And again, if you want to send me these kinds of emails and, and give me updates in, in, this, uh, you know, in, in this particular vein of information, I'm all for it, 100%. Always worth reporting on, I think. This next thing, too, is something that's occurring, which I'm glad for. It's, it's finally occurring, and it, and it needs to. I hope that uh, actual peer-reviewed studies like this are done with more regularity, and they don't hide the real reasons and the truth. But this one comes from Germany, and it's titled, Why Do People Consent to Receiving SARS-CoV-2 Vaccinations? A Representative Survey in Germany. And I'm just going to read you the abstract here. There's five authors to this, and it says the following, quote, objective, to answer the question, why do people consent to being vaccinated with novel vaccines against SARS-CoV-2? It was a representative study of an online panel with 1,032 respondents of the general German population. It says a representative survey among German citizens in November and December of 2021 that resulted in the 1,032 complete responses on vaccination status, sociodemographic parameters, and opinions about the COVID-19 situation. Results. Almost 83% of the respondents were vaccinated. The major motivation was fear of medical consequences of an infection and the wish to lead a normal life again. The major motivation to be not vaccinated was the fear of side effects and skepticism about long-term effectiveness and safety. 16% of vaccinated respondents reported some serious side effects, while more than 30% reported health improvements, mostly due to the relief of psychological stress and social reintegration. Oh. Oh my. <laughs> wow. Are they going to regret that? This study needs a follow up study already. It says we also validated a Corona Orthodoxy score, COS, consisting of seven items reflecting opinions on COVID 19. The scale is reliable alpha equals 0.76 and unidimensional. The COVID Orthodoxy score was a highly significant predictor of vaccination status and readiness to be vaccinated in a multivariable logistic regression model. Those who were vaccinated were more likely to live in smaller households, had a higher income, a higher COS score, and used less alternative media and scientific publications as information sources. Conclusions. The major motives for being vaccinated are fear of medical symptoms and the wish to lead a normal life. Those not wanting to be vaccinated cite a, like, cite rather, a lack of knowledge regarding long-term safety and side effects as reasons. This can likely only be overcome by careful and active long-term efficacy and safety monitoring. Unquote. And that was again Six plus months ago. I mean, yikes. These studies need follow up studies. I bet if you found 
those people again. Of course, now you're talking about a longitudinal study, but you find those individuals again. Ask them the same questions and see if their opinions have changed. I wonder if you could even get a hold of all 1,000 plus participants, assuming again that they're alive, which they probably aren't. Um, I don't know. That's interesting stuff, though. That's the kind of, again, these are the kinds of studies that, that are not existing within the field of education. I mean, they're just not. Uh, the, the same is true, again, with the nursing business and the medical, you know, the entire medical profession. These are the kinds of studies that need to exist even in the Journal of School Violence and any violence-related journal and workplace bullying-related journal. Again, why did you get it? Because I was going to lose my job, because I was being coerced and forced to get it, and I was constantly being pressured in the workplace and XYZ. The lists as to why people got these jabs, as you've heard me say, are endless. They exist on an endless spectrum, but it's all based on a lie, which is really the most horrific part of the entire thing, because coercion is just that. It's a lie, and it has to be. And this is going to be the last thing here, which again directly ties right into the health profession and what these health professionals have been seeing. And this comes from a Steve Kirsch substack from last week, but it's a number of bullet points that someone summarized. And I wanted to read this because it really is fascinating stuff. Uh, it's titled, Steve Kirsch created a form to ask healthcare workers about what they are seeing. It's everything you feared and then some. It, uh, it says the following, and I believe the article was titled, Sil Silenced Healthcare Workers Speak. And again, you can look that up on, on his substack uh, if you're interested. It says the following, number one. They are afraid to come out publicly due to intimidation tactics such as loss of job and or license to practice medicine. Number two, unvaccinated healthcare workers are extremely upset with the medical community. They feel they have been treated unfairly. That's an understatement. Number three, it is the vaccinated workers who are getting sick with COVID, but it is the unvaccinated who are punished with constant testing restrictions and threats of losing their jobs. Four, the COVID shots are a disaster. Even for the elderly, which is supposed to be the most compelling use case, death rates in elderly homes went up by a factor of five after the shots rolled out. Each time the shots are given, the deaths spike. Nobody is talking publicly about this. It's not allowed. Number five, Doctors are seeing rates of injury and death increase dramatically in all ages of people. The injuries are only happening to the vaccinated. There is no doubt that this is happening, but many doctors have so much cognitive dissonance that they don't see it. Six, one nurse with 23 years of experience says she's never heard of anyone under 20 dying from cardiac issues until the vaccines rolled out. Now she knows of around 30 stories. Seven. Quote, I've been a nurse for 36 years. I have never witnessed people in their 20s and 30s having strokes, atrial fibrillation, cardiomyopathies until, or cardiomyopathies until the COVID vaccines. I work in cardiology. 
When I mention that someone should look at the vaccines as a possible reason, I am immediately silenced and told, it is not from the vaccine, quote unquote. Number eight, doctors are recording vaccination status in the medical records so that all the deaths are attributed to the unvaccinated. Bastards. Number nine, doctors are deliberately ignoring the possibility that the vaccines could be the cause of all the elevated events. The events are simply all unexplained. Number 10, many doctors have either quit or will quit. Number 11, some doctors and nurses at top institutions such as Mass General Hospital have falsified vaccine cards. They publicly toe the line and encourage their patients to take the shot, knowing full well it is deadly. They value their job more than the lives of their patients. The important thing is they are risking 10 years in jail for doing this. These highly respected medical workers are telling the world that these COVID shots are so dangerous that they are willing to risk 10 years in prison to avoid taking the shot. That's the message America needs to hear. And if Biden were an honest president, he would call for full amnesty and protection from retaliation from all these cases if people admitted publicly they did this. He'd be amazed at the number of responses he'd get. But he won't do that because it would be too embarrassing for his administration. Number 12, things don't seem to be getting any better. Number 13, The medical examiners all over the world are not doing the proper tests during an autopsy to detect a vaccine-related death. Without doing the necessary tests, it is very hard to make an association. There isn't a single guidance, quote-unquote, document from any medical authority anywhere in the world to do these tests on people who die within three months of their last COVID vaccination. This is why no associations are found. They aren't looking for They aren't looking, and it's deliberate. The mainstream press doesn't call them out on this either. And 14, doctors are being forced to take other vaccines so the hospital can meet their quota. This was admitted to them. Unquote. It is remarkably incredible, is it not? It's just incredible. Again, one of the things that I'm going to do throughout the course of this upcoming fall and certainly the winter time is do my best to make weekly passes, at least maybe twice a week, past the local hospital here, and just see see what's going on. Because you can look right into the emergency room from the parking lot. You don't even have to walk into the building. And just gauge the number of individuals that are sitting around inside of the waiting rooms of these hospitals. I, yeah, I'm in complete agreement with all of, with all of those bullet points of what's actually going on. Again, it's this kind of information that has to continuously be gathered. And it's not about getting frustrated that we can't get it to the mainstream media so that they can tell the masses. The mainstream media is in on this hoax. They're in on this lie. And they're going to continue to perpetuate it. Again, I, I, w- I went back and and found the clips of, of Sean Hannity, as even Dr. Robin McCutcheon mentioned, of Sean Hannity backtracking and going, now look, I didn't tell anybody to take the vaccination, so I want to be clear. He's lying through his teeth. Because the audio clips that exist and the video that exists of him saying, I trust the science of vaccinations, well, that's a direct implication that people should take them. 
there's just absolutely no better time, I don't think, to be able to gather serious information like this. And then, of course, continuously bring it to as many people as, as humanly possible. Because not every peer-reviewed journal, of course, is going to ever publish any of this. They just aren't. That's why we need the substacks out there publishing this kind of stuff and the eyeball tests and the things that are going on in our areas. All of this is, as you've heard me say, is qualitative reasoning and analysis. This is remarkably important content. So again, if you're out there and you're listening to this and you have stories like that or like this that are going on, please email me and I'll read them right here on the show because people have to learn about this as it's continuously happening. As painful as it is, uh, it's, it's just something that has to continuously be brought up. So with that said, ladies and gentlemen, I'll catch you on Wednesday. Take care. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care and God bless.